Hello and welcome to Data Driven. While Frank is on holiday and Andy is occupied elsewhere, I thought it would be a good time to take over the show this weekend and share some special bonus content. The following is the keynote for the Azure Cloud Events Conference, wherein Frank talks about the future of AI and the top technologies to watch. I'll be sure to include the link to the original screen recording on YouTube in the show notes. Enjoy. Global Azure Data and AI Fest. Um, it's a virtual artificial intelligence and machine learning conference. Uh, it is a free uh, conference and community driven. And uh, the organizers of this conference is uh, Tim uh, and myself. Uh, Tim, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. I'm Tim McLilly. I'm a, a senior customer engineer for Microsoft. I live in the DC area. I work with Prashant on a lot of community events. And uh, I run primarily the Northern Virginia Data Platform User Group. And I uh, work with Prashant to uh, administer some AI and ML user groups. So good morning and thanks for attending. All right, thanks, Tim. Yeah, as Tim mentioned, uh, we are both local uh, to the Washington DC area. Uh, I currently work at Witham. Witham is an advisory tax and accounting firm based in the United States. And I currently work as senior solution architect where I use variety of other products and features in Microsoft ecosystem. I'm also a Microsoft MVP uh, in AI category. And MVPs typically don't work for Microsoft. Uh, it's just additional recognition that uh, Microsoft gives out uh, to a few people. Uh, so if you are, thanks for joining us today. And if you would like to participate in the future uh, events, uh, do check us out on azurecloudevents.com. And we also periodically post uh, the latest and greatest updates on our meetup uh, pages. And we have four uh, meetups, uh, sorry. Uh, one is on uh, Azure and uh, AI and machine learning. Uh, second one is on uh, SQL and big data. And third one is again, uh, the extension of our AI and ML uh, uh, user flow. Yeah, for the Azure, or can you go back to the other, for the Azure cloud events, uh, we're working on that right now. So that will, or in the coming weeks, that'll be a more, that'll actually be the central place where we'll direct you. Right. You'll be able to hop off from that link onto the meetup groups or our uh, conferences and events and our, our even our, our YouTube page. Thanks, Tim. And uh, this is going to be the agenda. So we started the event right at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, and then at 10, 15 a.m., uh, we will have a keynote from uh, Frank uh, Lavinia. Uh, you may, many of you have already heard about him or have uh, seen him speaking. Frank is a fantastic speaker. Until recently, he was working from Microsoft and now he had joined uh, AI a startup and it looks like Frank has joined us. Yay, Frank. And then, hey Frank. And at uh, 11 o'clock, uh, we will have uh, <clears throat> a talk from uh, John Topitza on Azure Machine Learning. Uh, then at noon, we will have a talk from uh, Veronica on uh, uh, speech services. At 1 p.m., we'll have a talk on uh, natural language uh, with Kiran. And uh, the last session of the day, I will be talking about uh, the community services uh, and AI in general for everyone. And then we will wrap around uh, 3 p.m. All the sessions will be recorded uh, and we will be posting those sessions uh, later on our YouTube uh, channel. Uh, it may take maybe uh, one or two weeks for us to process all the videos and post that. And once that is done, uh, we will be sending a blast email to all the attendees uh, so you know where to go and where to find uh, those recorded uh, uh, sessions. Yeah. Hey, actually, 
well, I'll be in the background during the the conference. So as sessions wrap up, I'll be able to process the video. So we should have video for all these sessions up uh, by this evening. And that's at yes. youtube.com forward slash Azure Cloud Events. And since we are using uh, Microsoft Teams uh, conference, uh, like Teams, uh, Teams for this conference, uh, please feel free to uh, ask questions uh, using the chat window. Uh, Tim and I will be periodically monitoring the chat window. You can also use the feature raise your hand in Teams, or you can also unmute yourself uh, and ask uh, the question. And regarding the question, it all depends on the speakers where whether they would like to have the questions in the beginning of the session, uh, sorry, toward in the middle, towards the end or throughout the session. So speakers will typically tell you uh, when exactly you can ask questions, but most of the speakers are fine uh, if you ask more and more questions because that makes uh, all the sessions interactive. And also it also helps other people uh, as well to explore other uh, things that they may not have thought about. Uh, so this is a quick uh, lineup for the speakers. Uh, uh, these are our LinkedIn profile links and we will be posting this in the chat window as well. So feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Uh, we're happy to uh, stay in touch. Uh, and with that, uh, we are happy to pass over the control to uh, Frank. And Frank will be doing a keynote uh, today. So Frank, uh, all yours. I will stop uh, sharing now uh, and let us know where you, whenever you are ready. And Tim, you can stop recording. Well, I'm recording Frank's session. Oh, okay, all right, perfect. Yeah, so I'm just gonna let it roll. We, awesome. Thing, can you hear me? One yes. thing, Frank. One thing, Frank. Yeah. Uh, just where the, there's a time for the other four sessions for John's session, for Veronica's sessions, for Kieran's session, and for Prashant's session, there is an MS Learn tie-in into each mm -hmm. of these sessions right. with links to MS Learn courses. Uh, the links are in the RSVPs on Meetup and in Eventbrite, so do take a look at that. This is a great takeaway from the session because you can hear what these speakers are talking about, but you can also interact with that information repeatedly for free off of MS Learn, but thank you, Frank. I'll shut my mouth. Oh, no problem, Tim. It's uh, Tim uh, Prashant. It's always a pleasure. Oh yeah. Uh, I do miss working at Microsoft. Um, <laughs> so as they mentioned, uh, I did uh, I did change companies recently. Uh, I joined a startup called Electrify, and we'll talk about them in a little bit. But I swear that this talk is not going to be commercial for Electrify. Uh, this is really kind of the trends and future of AI. And then maybe you'll understand my rationale for leaving Microsoft and handing in my blue badge. Um, so uh, I'm a principal solutions architect. Um, if you've not heard me speak before, welcome. Thank you. Uh, my email addresses are there. I have two podcasts and a blog. Uh, Franksworld.com has been online in some form or the other since 1995. Um, although due to a, a glitch in the matrix, all the data since uh, prior to 2017 was lost into the ether. Uh, uh, I have a podcast called Data Driven, which I run with my good friend uh, Andy Leonard, and another podcast on quantum computing, uh, and we'll talk about that. That little QR code there is my, a link to my LinkedIn profile, uh, so hopefully you'll be able to uh, connect with me later. Uh, but ultimately, today is about kind of what the future and what does the future of AI look like? Well, you know, that's a that's a question when I was asked to kind of talk uh, and deliver a keynote. Uh, you know, what what does the future look like? 
uh, because you know certainly we have these visions of what the future will look like: driverless cars, computers, and AI taking jobs away. All of the apocalyptic type stuff. And granted, after last year, I understand why people's um, uh, attitude has gotten pessimistic. <laughs> um, but uh, the best way to predict the future is to create it. And I hope that this talk, uh, even though there's a typo in Peter Drucker's name, um, will inspire you to kind of think differently or think bigger and better about what the possible possibilities are for the future. And... Um, but how do you predict the future, right? Um, there's really no way of knowing the future because if I could predict the future, I would be working the tables in Vegas every day. Well, maybe until I get bored and then I'd move to an island somewhere. But ultimately, here's kind of the, the six things that we should keep an eye on. Uh, first off, riches are in the niches. That's another quote um, from uh, Pat Flynn, uh, who is often quoted by one of my favorite podcasters in the world, uh, is uh, John Lee Dumas and Entrepreneurs on Fire. Highly recommend that podcast. Um, next thing is IoT in the edge. IoT is the hotness, right? And I, everything's getting connected to the internet. But to me, as a data scientist, IoT is just a, a, a funnel for data. Right. I don't, you know, yeah, it's nice and all. I can turn my lights on and, you know, see, you know, cameras in my house or, you know, check on the HVAC from a distance. But the real thing, the real value prop there is the data that that's going to collect and the type of work I can do off that in the future. Um, next thing is containerization. Uh, virtualization really changed the game, uh, you know, in the early 2010s. And I think that containerization is totally changing the game of how applications are developed, written, and how even AI models are deployed. Next up is automated ML. Now, this was something that on a previous stage, way back in the before time, when we were meeting in person, uh, someone uh, asked a question, what do I think of auto ML? And I kind of poo-pooed it that it was just going to be kind of uh, well, not really relevant. It's just kind of all hype and it's not going to take AI or, or, or ML jobs away. And then uh, I kind of, I don't know if you ever seen World War Z, but there's a concept that they introduced in the movie that uh, there's a government agency somewhere that any anytime they hear something that's just so preposterous and so ridiculous uh, that they go and they actually uh, will, will look at it because it's so preposterous and ridiculous and they go to, and try to prove it right. I'm not, I know I'm not explaining it right, but 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 that's a it's a good movie if you haven't seen it. So I kind of you know after having written a Silverlight book and being a Windows Phone uh, developer evangelist, I realized that you know maybe I can't always predict the future. <laughs> so maybe even though I think that may be ridiculous, let me take a look at it. And I had my aha moment when uh, you know I was just able to in 15 minutes solve a data science problem that I had worked on for my certifications that uh, took me about uh, a week and a half. It, the AI was able to do in about 20 minutes and all together to prep the data and shape the data to make it work through the automated ML was a 40 minute experience. That was my aha moment. So I'll talk more about that in detail later. Uh, secondly, data, data, data. Uh, data is the new oil uh, and uh, AI is the new electricity, but you can't have one without the other although I suppose you can ruin my analogy with wind, solar, and natural gas. 
but but stick with me. I'll explain that a little more in detail. What I mean by that. And finally, quantum computing. Quantum computing. I had my aha moment about quantum computing when, uh, again, in the before time, uh, at the last uh, Microsoft uh, research um, kind of conference that they throw for employees. Uh, and they were talking about kind of the future of, of what compute looks like. And they kind of talked about quantum computing and what that means. So these, you know, some of these are buzzwords. Some of these are not uh, buzzwords. Um, but ultimately, uh, let's start here. The riches are in the niches. Uh, and uh, making big impact in small markets. Apparently, he's written a number of books on this. So, um, But I've only heard this quoted by John Lee Dumas like a billion times. Um, and I think, you know, that, that word small tends to, to turn off a lot of people because why would I want to be in a small market? Uh, where I, I, if I'm too, so if it's too small, um, I won't be able to do anything meaningful. And John Lee Dumas will explain this at least once or twice uh, a week in his podcast. But ultimately, if you doubt that anything is too small to have an impact, I would encourage you to think about if you're too small to have an impact, look at what this tiny, stupid virus did to the world. Uh, we certainly do have an impact. So. Uh, and this is what really made me uh, want to join Electrify um, because they basically took the, the, the service model that Microsoft has, right, with cognitive services, right? I go and I can get a cognitive service to do text analytics. I get a text, um, you know, uh, uh, there's form recognizer, uh, computer vision, all uh, text-to-speech, all of this stuff that's out there that Microsoft produces. Now, the true opportunity uh, for Microsoft, that makes sense, right? Because you want to solve the world's problems. But for a smaller company like Electrify, uh, what we really kind of realized is like, well, what if we solve the niche problems, right? What if we solved, you know, for telecom companies, right? Um, you know, customer service, uh, figure out um, uh, call center reduction, churn mitigation. These are big business problems that virtually every subscription business has faced in some way or the other, whether it's Netflix, whether it's T-Mobile, Sprint, uh, Sprint doesn't exist anymore, uh, or Verizon or AT&T, all of these uh, problems. And if you look at this list, you know, it's not just limited to telecom, right? There's contract AI. Everybody has to deal with contracts, right? Contracts, I guess, arguably are a type of form, which form recognizer can handle, but it's not, form recognizer is not built to do clause extraction. Uh, or uh, finding indemnification clauses, right, or governing law, right? All of these types of things are really kind of niche problems, very specific problems. Uh, when we work with banking, uh, mortgage, um, HR, public service in terms of healthcare, right? We're uh, in the process of making the Pulmo, Pulmo, I can't say it, Pulmo AI uh, where it can actually identify uh, apparently the new strain of COVID Delta um, can be quickly uh, ID'd uh, through an X-ray. And we've developed a, an AI that can kind of give you a pretty good confidence, like 80, 90% uh, to find that. So all of these niche problems, uh, you know, whether all of these, these, these companies deal with this, right? We have a very interesting thing in terms of animal welfare. Again, not turning this into a commercial for Electrify, but I'm just saying that the overall kind of generic type of approach of boiling the ocean, um, you know, that's you, you need a big pot to boil the ocean, and, and, and a company like Microsoft certainly has a big pot to do that. 
But in terms of these niche problems, right, whether you're trying to upsell, cross-sell, churn mitigation, all of these types of things, um, that's really where I think the opportunity is. And that, that's the opportunity that brought me to Electrify. Uh, another interesting tidbit is that the worldwide um, market in computer vision is expected to reach $51.3 billion in just uh, five years from now. Uh, and that's a, a continual annual growth rate of 26%. That's not too shabby. That's nothing to sneeze at. Um, so I think that the, 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 the real task, and if you kind of look around now and you see what the job market looks like, it's not enough to be just a data scientist, right? Obviously, that helps. Uh, uh, or an AI engineer, ML engineer, whatever the hip term is this week. Uh, you have to have some kind of experience in NLP, natural language processing, or computer vision, or conversational AI. That's another one uh, that I'm seeing kind of a niche form. Obviously, that's some flavor of natural language processing. But I think just like you saw with web development, um, it, you know, we're seeing a lot of these trends where the, there, there's going to be specializations coming. And that's when I said the riches are in the niches uh, in that regard. All right, next up is the edge or IoT and the edge. Right? Everybody knows what IoT is, right? You know, it's those smart devices. But there's this concept that, that is kind of tied to that. Uh, that you don't hear, well, you're starting to hear more of, and that's the edge. But first, a joke. The, uh, the S in IoT is for security. Um, so I will assume everybody's laughing, but ultimately, uh, one of the opportunities or problems or opportunities in this space is not just kind of the edge, but also security in IoT. And a lot of this is going to evolve around, a lot of this is going to evolve around things like, um, uh, physical gateways, um, you know, securing this, securing self-driving cars. Yeah, self-driving cars are going to be safer than humans driving. However, um, if those get hacked and you have an accident, uh, there is definitely some some room for bad actors to play. And if you think I'm crazy or I'm being a uh, wearing a tinfoil hat, I ask you to just think back to about uh, six weeks ago uh, when everybody was lining up at the gas station, right? Ultimately, uh, somebody connected, um, connected something to the internet without really thinking about it. And there we were. So security is definitely, you know, I, I was trying to think of, you know, making this focused on data, but I mean, security and AI uh, and IoT, I think IoT is lacking security in a big way. And I think that that is going to be a growth, growth market. But I mean, the edge is basically the idea that let's just say I had a self-driving car, right? And we had this magical, wonderful cloud service that was up here and that's my attempt at drawing a cloud. So if I try to take a picture of what's in front of me in the car, right? Uh, say there's a person here. And if this person, I'm driving at a good clip, say 60 miles an hour, and the car is gonna send a question out to the, um, send its data packets of what it sees, up to a cloud service that says, hey, should I put the brake on? Should I swerve? What should I do? No matter how fast 5G or the carriers will tell you 5G is, that round trip is going to take milliseconds. And if you're going fast enough, uh, the ground situation has changed radically enough that by the time the answer comes back, the answer is useless, right? So um, what the idea of Edge is that you'd have a little something that probably looks like this uh, inside of here so that the decision's actually made here on the device. And now you're talking about billions of a second 
as opposed to milliseconds uh, or even seconds, right? If there's, you know, you think about the amount of data that a self-driving car would produce. Some people say four uh, terabytes a day per car. And if you've ever had the privilege of being stuck on 495, uh, you know that there's a lot of cars on the road at the same time. So you can imagine what that network congestion would look like. So immediately by moving that decision to device, you remove that as a variable. Uh, so... And I also want to think about this kind of in a larger picture, right? So what are the waves of innovation here, right? So cloud uh, basically means that I have unlimited compute. I have the ability to, um, um, you know, scale up. When I, when I was at barnesandnoble.com, right? So I, I was um, the first webmaster at Barnes & Noble. For us to even sell the first book, it took us... I mean, it took a lot of money, right? We had to buy a server rack, right? We had to buy this, and we had to gas for, uh, well, how many people we think will show up? Well, we think this way. So we had to build to the maximum. You don't need to do that with the cloud. If I wanted to start a bookstore today, I mean, I could probably do that for a five-figure sum to get that started. Whether or not that's a good idea, I'll leave that to your imagination. But if I wanted to start something like that, I mean, I could probably get away with a five-figure amount, and probably realistically, in today's world, most of that's going to be spent on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, and and YouTube ads. Realistically, um, so IoT again, I think this is really this is really what it is, right? It's really about harnessing the the signals from sensors, and managed centrally by the cloud. So when I before I rejoined Microsoft, I worked at uh, at Wintelect, and we were working with a startup, and this was cool. They worked with the MMA, and they put basically put sensors in the uh, in in the boxing gloves, so they they would know the 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 pitch duration and and impact um, of the of the punches and things like that. So mostly that was not so much intended for the fights per se. That was so the coaches can kind of estimate how well the training was going. So they insisted, and this is a few years ago. Uh, no, everything had to be on premise. They were going to take all the sensors from these devices and put it on premise. Now think about that. Uh, I like to use the analogy of, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to really be able to draw it well, but let's pretend this is an ant, one of those nasty little ants that bite you, right? And here's the sharp teeth. One of those bites is not going to kill you, but times 10,000, right, per second times time, that is going to be an impact. Now you're like, Frank, why are you talking about bugs? You know, cicadas in the, the Virginia, D.C. area have finally gone away. Why, why are you reminding me of bugs? Well, here's why. Because each one of these little sensors in the, I'm going to attempt to draw a um, boxing glove, right? Uh, that looks more like a dinosaur, but work with me here. So pretend this is the sensor, right? It's sending out, uh, I think we estimated about, uh, I think it was like 64 KB per second is what the sensor was pushing out. Right now, times two because you're going to have a sensor in each in each hand, uh, times number of fighters. You could quickly see that this modest little thing, if that product took off and they were going to make it the consumer thing and make it more reliable, clearly they were going to need a big pipe into their data their 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 on-prem data center, which they didn't have the money to realistically do. And they ultimately they decided the cloud would be the best place for that because the cloud can scale. Now, do you pay for that scaling? Yeah, you do, but you only pay for what you use. So you can price that into your product. And ultimately, uh, another thing that they were thinking was that they were going to have some kind of thing that would be um, you know, ringside 
right? So imagine this is a, a boxing ring or an MMA ring. Um, and uh, yes, I know MMA rings are octagons, but but I didn't want to torture you with my drawing. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, they were thinking about having some kind of device here uh, for when they were going to put this onto like TV is that you'd have the two boxers uh, and each one would have kind of a, it would basically go to here and then some of that data would be scrubbed and then kind of broadcast over the internet for kind of a premium experience so that, you know, for all sorts of things. But ultimately, it's the idea that you can take all of this data at every stage here. IoT is really just collecting data. Edge is just basically kind of filtering the data and, and managing it and, and feeding it. But ultimately, the end game here is AI, right? Building out these predictive models, right? Um, you know, when... Uh, this happens, well, you know, when this part breaks on the elevator, then the chances are that there's going to be a massive elevator failure. Why don't you just get that ahead of time, right? This is critically important for the manufacturing space when with the manufacturing floor shuts down, I mean, it's, it could cost millions of dollars per hour in lost revenue. Next thing I want to mention is containerization. Uh, containers have really changed the nature of what it means to be a application developer, right? Um, you know, it used to be that you would have uh, way back early in my career, I would, um, you know, we would have to price and um, uh, price up uh, a server. And back in the days of DLL hell, you know, application X would not want to sit on the same server as application Y. So we'd have to buy another server, requisition another server and all the mess that that entailed, um, just to run this machine. So even though the machine, multiple apps were running on this machine, uh, and it was way below capacity, we still had to buy more hardware. Virtualization really took the server world by storm because you didn't have to worry about that anymore. Every, every uh, application could get its own virtual server, and you didn't have to worry about that kind of that DLL hell or the fighting across applications in the same way. Uh, now, virtualization kind of meant that you had to every um, every virtual machine needed to have uh, resources and um, uh, spend cycles uh, just supporting the base OS. Containerization really kind of removed that. So now, when I ship an application, I just ship a container, and you know I can you know deploy that anywhere on Kubernetes, on Docker, and on on on, on Azure, uh, is it AKS, Azure Kubernetes service? And I can orchestrate these machines as uh, these applications as if they were running on their own machines. And immediately, uh, you know, it makes it more portable, right? I can run it, I can run a Docker container on my desktop, on my, uh, in the cloud. Uh, I can run it anywhere. Uh, one of the big things for us at Electrify is protecting our IP. So you can actually secure and encrypt uh, what a container uh, contents are. So that basically our models can be a black box, right? So no one can hack into it. Uh, you know, that's a big that's a big deal for us. It's also multi-cloud, right? I know this is an Azure event, so I won't mention mention any other cloud, but let's pretend that uh, <laughs> that I mean uh, that other clouds exist. But realistically, even Microsoft is doing that. If you've heard of Arc, um, you know, Azure Arc, uh, the idea that you can orchestrate your workloads across, you know, Azure, across on-prem, across, um, you know, AWS or anywhere else, that, that the world, the future is multi-cloud. It's, you know, if you're a large enterprise, yeah, you may want to favor one cloud or the other, but just in the interest of redundancy and 
uh, extreme disaster recovery. Um, it's if I were a C, uh, CIO uh, of a large kind of company like that, I definitely want to have that in my back pocket, the ability that, you know, AWS had an outage not that long ago. And, you know, if I totally relied on them, I would be out of business. Um, it's also microservices. A container is seen to be custom made for microservices. And if you're not familiar with microservices as a concept, basically, if you have a web page and you are selling stuff, uh, you'd have one service for, uh, you know, kind of rendering uh, the basic product information. And you'd have another one to pull another service to have the um, for reviews. And then you'd have another service to have the, you know, customers also bought. That's why if you're shopping on a very famous, uh, well, I already said Amazon. So uh, if you're shopping on Amazon, you'll notice sometimes the stuff will load at different, different uh, uh, cadences and speeds. Uh, that's apparently what's going on behind the scenes. Um, now, how does this reply to AI? Well, this is exactly our business model at Electrify, right? Uh, so we work with partner organizations, and if you're interested in being a partner, uh, feel free to hit me up. But basically, um, customer has data sources, uh, a partner will do all the ETL. We define, based on the model that's given there, we'll define what, what fields we need from these different types of systems. And then we do all the AI work and kind of take our pre-trained models, kind of train it, a little bit of custom work. And then what we supply out is a Docker container, right? Uh, we don't build apps. We don't build reports. We don't build UI. Um, but you can use it, right? This essentially becomes like a cognitive service. Now, you can get the cognitive services uh, that are mentioned uh, also available as a container uh, if, if, if you ask nicely enough and, and, and they bless you uh, with, that, with that exception. But, uh, you know, that's our business model, right? So this Docker container can run on Azure. It could run on AWS, it could run on-prem, it could run on an edge device. It doesn't really matter where it runs. And that's the key. Uh, so I think that, that this is kind of the future, right? So data science team, they build out the AI, they build out the models. Okay, well, now what, right? And you see that even in Azure ML. The deployment is basically you pick what your AKS uh, cluster is going to be. That's ultimately kind of the, the, I think, the vision that what's making that um, uh, possible. So... Next up, uh, I talked about this uh, a little bit in depth before, but automated ML. Um, yeah, I think that automated ML is definitely going to be a big part of the future uh, in, in this space. Now, on some, on some level, uh, is it going to take away data science jobs? I mean, I mean, maybe. But one of the things I've seen both in Microsoft and outside of Microsoft is the common theme is that if you have uh, one data scientist, or you have a team of, say, 200 data scientists at any uh, large company, what they really need is they need 600 data scientists, right? Uh, these folks are overworked and overloaded. In fact, one of my customers, one of my favorite customers when I was at Microsoft was a utility company, and they had this, they had a, a, a backlog of work that was probably two years long. They had a team of about 12 people, but there was somebody, again, in the corner office had to have this problem sorted out right away. It was a customer and their propensity to not pay. It was that type of thing. Um, so before I heard of Electrify. So I basically said, well, why don't you just get the data? Show me the data that you have. And they had basically a big dump from, a, uh, from an old IBM mainframe of a CSV file. And I was like, all right. So what, do you, what, what are you trying to predict here? Right? And they were basically trying to do a prediction problem of, you know, I have all my customer data here, right? Um, and then 
are they going to pay or not, right? So that was yes, no. Data scientists in the crowd know that that's my label, and this is a binary classification problem, which is super easy to do in Azure ML. You basically go, you upload the data, you tell it what you want to look for, what type of problem it is, and then you run it. And, you know, this was a, I think this was going back like 40, 50 years or something like that. It was like a, it was like a four gig CSV file. And they told me, they said, we just don't have time to work on this. Is there anything you can do? And I'm like, actually, why don't you try automated amount? And I was like, and then realistically, they're like, well, we don't know. I'm like, what's the risk here? I mean, really? I mean, if you get your, I mean, it, most it's going to cost you, it's not going to cost you $100, right? And you know what? You're not putting a lot of time into it. All of the, you know, so I walked them through. And uh, basically, I said, now, now go home <laughs> or do other work because the cloud is chewing on this and, you know, tell me what happened. So they had the model next morning was ready. Right. And they were able to deliver a product uh, that had, you know, 93 percent accuracy. Now, could a in-person data scientist do better? Yeah, they probably could, but they're not going to do it in 12 hours, you know. Um, and you know, and that's also asynchronous, right? So I could kick that off. I can go do other work. And if it's not done at night, I go home, I watch TV, I watch Netflix. I, I, I watch the expanse or, or, or game of Thrones and it's done for me, right? The machine is working on it. So, uh, I think that solves kind of the, the shortage problem. And I, but I'm not, uh, I probably won't take away data science jobs. Maybe. Uh, but I mean, I wouldn't lose sleep over losing your job to an automated ML solution because I think that there's just such a shortage of this, which gets me to my next point. If you want data, if you really want job security, um, data engineering, right? It's all about the data. Um, data engineering is such an underappreciated skill, uh, but it's basically it's basically how this how AI works, right? Without data, there is no AI to create. So uh, I'm going to go, and it's not, a, I guess, a true kind of Frank Lavinia presentation until I break out the whiteboard. So I used to work at the Microsoft Technology Center in Reston, and we love the whiteboard. So, so basically, here's kind of, the, here's kind of the, the, the business problem here. Let me, uh, let me pull out my fancy graphics um, uh, while I do that. But are there any questions at this point while I pull out some graphics? All right. I will assume that there are no questions. All right. So basically, what, what am I talking about here? Well, um, when I was on um, uh, when I was on vacation a few years ago, we went to this place and it basically called gem mining. So if you ever go to any kind of mountain community or where there's history mining, they always offer this thing called gem mining. And my first thought was like, what are they talking about? Gem mining? My kids saw it. They want to do it. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. Because I'm thinking that you got to get uh, hard hats, pickaxes, all this crazy stuff. But you didn't. Uh, turns out what you do is you buy a bucket. And this bucket is filled with dirt, uh, with rocks in it. And basically what you do is they have a, an artificial flume. So you're like a, one of those pan, gold panners in the Old West. And then what you do is you, um, you basically hope to get rocks. Right? And when the rocks, uh, you basically get rid of the dirt. Right. So you clean up the, the dirt and you get the rocks. Then what you do is you um, you you take it to most of the better places will have a gemologist on staff. 
And the gemologist will look at the rock and tell you, hey, you have something that um, you have something that would be, look really good. And what they'll do is, is, you know, you have a good gem, right? So one year my kid found a uh, 85 carat emerald, and another year he found a 40 some odd carat uh, amethyst. And um, so what what they'll do is that they'll say, well, you know, for an additional fee, uh, they will go and uh, cut that cut that gem into uh, into something uh, very uh, beautiful. And of course, for um, another extra fee, they'll mount said gem onto a ring or necklace. This is my attempt at drawing a necklace or earrings. I'm not going to even try to draw an earring. Um, so as I'm doing this, as I'm sitting there in the flume, getting all muddy and dirty and trying to keep the kids from jumping in the flume and splashing on each other, I realized this feels a lot like work. And I don't mean like it's actual work or labor. It feels, reminds me of my job, right? So if you think about it, this is the raw data we all have to deal with, right? And then this process here of getting rid of the separating the, uh, the, the signal from the noise, that's data engineering, right? And then this here, there's another step here that I didn't mention is that if you get like a geode or something that looks really cool, you see crystals on people's desks, you don't have to do anything with it because it's perfect right there, right? So in that sense, I think of that as kind of BI, right? And then the, these folks here that do this evaluation, these are the data scientists, right? Because they're the ones that tell you, oh, you got a good nugget here. Let's, let's explore this further, right? And then what's this? This is your model, right? So you start with the raw data, you clean it up. If you have an interesting nugget, you can throw that nugget on a dashboard and it's self-explanatory. I have a couple of them on my desk um, and you know they don't need any extra work because they're, they're cool as they are. But if you wanna kinda get the jam out of that, well, that's basically what the data scientists and AI engineers do. So then what's this? This is your deployment, right? So you take, this basically is kind of, and if you notice, a big chunk of this is data engineering. I dealt with a lot of customers that they just don't have their data in, in, in the right format or the right place or the right anything, right? And this has nothing to do with how well organized or not organized the, the, organi uh, the organ, I said organization so many times, how, how well the company has their data estate kind of in order or not, most don't. Um, but the algorithms that you, you feed this through, the data through to come up with the AI and do all this research, they're very picky eaters, right? So you have to kind of do this work anyway. So, so, so I would say is that data engineering is such an underappreciated skill right now, and there's such a shortage of those folks. Because most of the data engineers in the world are still operating at thinking like they're DBAs, right? And thinking about the DBA world. It's not the DBA world anymore, right? I don't need to page somebody in the middle of the night to swap out a hard drive, right, in my data center, right? Because it's the cloud. I don't have to worry about that. Microsoft worries about that. So I would say is that data engineering, and I'm seeing this constantly, constantly in my current job. Uh, I saw it a lot in my previous job at Microsoft. I'm seeing it a lot more now, too. Because, you know, these organizations, they have data. Or here's a great example. And if you, this is a, I swear it's not a commercial for the podcast, but if you go listen to a recent episode I recorded with another uh, MTC architect, Dave Wenzel, where he was talking about you don't need a data warehouse. He's talking about the future 
of data warehousing, right? Which is going to look an awful lot like a data lake. Now I know that's I know that's a very controversial topic, and we kind of had it we hashed it out with him over about an hour and fifteen minutes. But the short of it is is that the future of data warehousing is going to look different because what's happening now? One customer I'm dealing with now they are what they are an insurance company buying another insurance company, right? They took data their data estate very seriously and very organized. The firm they're buying, not so much. So what they're talking about doing instead of deleting or destroying their or or their data lake, uh, I mean their data warehouse because their data warehouse is actually very orderly and very perfectly designed. Uh, uh, the 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 many folks would be proud to have that as their data thing. The other folks don't. So what they're actually doing is they're going from a data warehouse to kind of a lake house type architecture, where instead of doing Every, perfecting everything. They're just going to leave everything in the mess that it's there and then basically kind of bring order out of the chaos as opposed to uh, at runtime as opposed to doing that all up front. So somebody went off mute, so I'm assuming there might be a question. No? All right. So next thing, and I will say this, from a personal growth development uh, standpoint, when I joined the MTC a little over a year ago, actually way over a year uh, ago, you know, I was, I was an AI guy, right? I was an AI engineer, right? That knew some data engineering things. Cause when I worked with Tim, when I was on a project with Tim, I'd be like, you know, Tim would be like, all right, you do the AI stuff. I'll take care of the data stuff, right? That was not my wheelhouse. So when I was the, the data and AI architect at the rest of MTC, I scaled up. You can look at my LinkedIn profile, how many courses I took, right? So for me, for my own personal career growth, now I consider myself probably maybe 60 40 now not quite 50 50 i'm still i still have ai in my heart but now i can i can i can play a good game in the in the in the data engineering space and you know for me that definitely gives you a um uh an advantage in the career market because a lot of these data science folks they don't care they they just give me the data i i don't care how you get it i don't want to touch the dirt they're, they're like the gemologist, right, in that story. They don't want to touch the dirt. They don't want to get their hands dirty. They just want to get the rocks that have been all rinsed and cleaned. Yeah, reality doesn't work that way. Um, uh, so question um, from uh, Suzanne. Uh, what's the best way to start in data science world? Uh, what certification is required for entry level? So, I mean, um, there's a number of certification programs now. Uh, unfortunately, the one that was my favorite is no longer. It was the... Um, uh, team up that Microsoft did with edX. That's the one I took. I thought that curriculum was fantastic. Um, however, now Microsoft has their learn platform, which I haven't taken a lot of their data science classes there. I have taken their quantum stuff there and some of their Docker container stuff. That's fantastic. Uh, I don't know what certifications you would get out of that, but I do know it does prepare you for the data science and data engineering um, certifications. So, I mean, now let's dial it back, right? Honestly, 80% of data science is statistics. 80% of statistics. The remaining 20% is split between calculus and just knowing your way around SQL and kind of just for different data structure. That's it. There's no magic. There's no hocus pocus, but you know, you, you, if you're not already comfortable in math, get comfortable in math. Um, because I was, I, I was the kid that hated math in school. Um, and it's only since I kind of retook statistics as an adult 
uh, that I kind of fell in love with math. And that sounds really uh, nerdy and pathetic. Speaking of math, this, this is the future. And um, this is probably, uh, I would say quantum computing is probably 80% uh, uh, matrix maths or linear algebra and 20% everything else. Quantum computing is going to change the world. Absolutely. Now, here's the question. I don't know if it's going to change the world in five years, 10 years, or longer. But there is something very interesting here in this notion of quantum emulation. Now, a lot of folks, when they hear that, well, why would I want to emulate a quantum computer when, when I can get a real one? All right, that is true. So uh, there are some problems um, that we just can't solve right now. Um, these classically intractable problems, right? Uh, simulating what medicines would do or molecules would do. How plants get nitrogen from the atmosphere, right? A third, a full third of the energy in this world is used to produce fertilizer, right? That basically does the same thing that whatever seed you have, um, the, the, the grass in your yard or the trees, every plant can, can basically do on its own um, it to, um, uh, I see your question. Uh, I will get to that. Every plant can basically pull in, um, nitrogen from the air to, to feed itself. What we as humans do to feed our growing populations and empower our, uh, agriculture is we have to do all sorts of chemical chemistry and magic to, uh, basically produce nitrogen to put in the soil. Um, so to, to get better crop yields, I'm not an, I'm not a farmer, but, um, I, I did start college as a chemical engineer. Um, so basically, we don't know exactly how plants do it. We don't know how little seeds do it, right? Um, and turns out that, that simulating molecular chemical reactions takes a lot, a lot of computing power, right? To the point where, um, you know, th this is a little overdramatic, but, but <laughs> you know, age of the universe, right? Uh, but, but I mean, there are problems that right now, if they were done on classical uh, computers with classical uh, algorithms, would take about 10,000 years. To put that in perspective, at humans 10,000 years ago started the agriculture. So 10,000 years from now is how long it would take to solve some of these problems. Yeah, but, but Frank, you know, I can get myself a Xeon or Core i9 and do this faster. Yeah, you could do a little faster, but not at the scale that you need, right? It's kind of like walking versus driving. Right? You can walk 100 miles. You can drive 100 miles. Right? One's going to be faster than the other, no matter how fast you can run. So what quantum computing can do is kind of solve these problems in a way that the whole talk on how quantum computing works is way outside the scope of this talk. But ultimately, it's the idea of solving these problems faster in a way that takes advantage of, of kind of the, the, the quantum state of uh, subatomic particles, right? Way outside the scope of this talk. Now, you're probably thinking, Frank, I, I, don't, I don't care about simulating uh, stuff. I just want to train my ML models faster. I want to find the, 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 the global minimum. Well, turns out, <clears throat> excuse me, turns out that uh, that is one of the things that quantum computing can do exceedingly well and exceedingly fast. So this is from a, um, a study that Microsoft did. So, of course, it's, you know, map of Seattle. And what they're doing is they're, they're, they're calculating kind of the optimum 
uh, routes here. Turns out that quantum computers are really good, or quantum algorithms are really good at solving the uh, optimization problems. But but here's here's kind of the trick, and this is the thing that blew my mind when I heard it, right? So classical computer would take 10,000 years to solve this problem, right? A true, real quantum computer, an actual honest-to-goodness qubits on down quantum computer would take uh, 100 seconds or so, right? A This project here took 10 months. And you're like, Frank, 10, 10 months is nowhere near the scale of 10,000 years or 100 seconds. What's going on? That's because they use conventional hardware hardware, which is stuff you can buy today, um, but they use quantum algorithms. Or another way, they simulated a quantum computer on conventional hardware. Now, how does that work? Again, way outside the scope of this, but let's think about it this way. <clears throat> say, say you have a leak in your roof, right? Actually, I have a leaky pipe in the other room, uh, and it's apparently it's really hard to get a plumber, but let's pretend I go to, I go to the first... If I want to do it myself, it would take 10,000 years. Let's be ridiculous here, right? I was like, all right. So I go to the first vendor, and I say, um, hey, how quick can you do it? And uh, Quantum Plumbing says, oh, we can do that in, uh, I can do that in 15, 20 seconds. Not a big deal. All right, when can you start? Oh, in about 5, 10, maybe 20 years from now. Okay. Go to my third contractor, right? I'll call it conventional plumbing. Um. How long will it take you to do? Oh, it'll take me like a month or two. Oh, well, that's not good, but but when can you start? Oh, I can start today, right? That's kind of the business value. The business value here is that you get the acceleration of 10 months over 10,000 years, which is still a pretty um, uh, pretty, pretty uh, good leap in order of magnitude, but you also get kind of the ability to start today. And that gets me to my next question. Uh, it turns out that there's a lot of, uh, problems we have with actually making an actual quantum computer. Uh, now you've probably all seen the pictures of the, the thing that looks like a chandelier that's cool to look, you know, near absolute zero. There's been a lot of innovations in this just in the last few months, but but ultimately we are still talking about a time frame of uh, five to ten years uh, or more, right? I mean, this this thing here is basically saying. Uh, this is the, the algorithm that will break kind of conventional encryption, which is everyone freaking out about. Uh, depending on who you believe and how optimistic you are, we're either going to hit that in the next couple of years or in the next couple of decades. Uh, there's a lot of work being done in this space right now. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, speaking to this, is that um, knowing the algorithms and how to program and, and, and things like Q-sharp and Qiskit and kind of understanding the basics think getting started in that today, uh, you will be ready. Um, it, you know, when the recruiter five, 10 years from now says, Hey, do you have five, 10 years of experience in quantum computing? You can say, yes, in fact I do. Um, so, um, so thank you. And I will see you in the future. Uh, that's all I got. Uh, hopefully that you found this, uh, enlightening and, um, uh, an interesting presentation. Uh, you um, you can scan that QR code, but those are all the URLs. If you want to know more about what's going on in Electrify, go to electrify.net. Uh, tell them Frank sent you. 
Um, and um, there's my blog, franksworld.com, datadriven.tv, Impact Quantum, and a new secret project that Andy and I uh, have been working on for a while, datachannel.tv. Uh, go check it out and um, hit me up if you want a discount code um, for the, the service. And um, with that, I will answer uh, the question here. Uh, what is the best method to get into data science from an infrastructure background? I would say as an infrastructure person, you have an advantage over traditional data scientists. So there's kind of this, this two worlds here, and um, I'll have to rely on Tim and Prashant to keep me honest on time, right? So if you kind of think about the data world, um, and I used to have a really cool thing. It was basically a slide deck for Synapse, but you basically had kind of traditional uh, data um, DBAs basically. I know that's not the proper term, but people who come from that kind of that era. And then you kind of had the data scientists, right? Um, these folks here were all about SQL, right? Um, structure, schemas, right? Data scientists, um, they're all about, well, R, Python, right? The newfangled languages, although Python's not really new, neither's R. Um, they all didn't care about structure. Structure less or unstructured data, right? Schema on read, right? Don't make a schema until you need it, right? Um, I would say uh, from an infrastructure person, I mean, when, 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 when these folks, data scientists are a curious lot. And I say this as one, um, they don't, they don't really, they don't, the, oddly enough, they don't know anything about infra, by and large. They don't know infra. They don't care to know. All they want to know is how many GPUs do I have at my hand? Can I get my hands on? <laughs> um, so I would say, as someone who's who's familiar with infra, infra like networking and things like that, I mean, I would say, I would say you have a good advantage there because if you know the infra side of things and you learn kind of the math and the statistics. You already have an appreciation. DBA is kind of by nature when things were on-prem. Uh, they already had kind of a, a pretty solid understanding of infra, right? If you were the person that got paged at 3 in the morning, and yes, kids, pagers were a real thing. Go go Google it. I mean, Google it with Bing. Um, uh, you had to know the infra, right? You had to know, oh, I can't ping this. Uh, or I remember the nightmare thing I had to deal with was TNS, which was Oracle's implementation of a name server which I still have nightmares about that thing, and I'll use good language. Uh, but, but ultimately, uh, that's kind of, you know, you have that experience, right? You're, you're probably not intimidated by, uh, you know, pinging and, or doing networking type stuff like that. So you have that advantage. And I, I would say the best way to get started is, um, uh, I mean, I could put a plug in for Data Channel TV. We, we kind of do that. Uh, but, but I mean, ultimately, the best way to get started is just, Getting familiar with things, the tools of the trade here, right? Jupyter Notebooks, um, you know, all of this stuff is either free or almost free. Uh, all of this stuff is actually open source. I mean, even Databricks uh, is based on open source Spark. And there's a lot of good courses and stuff out there on LinkedIn Learning and um, um, Pluralsight and, um, you know, Data Channel. Uh, you know, but I mean, I think that, you already have an advantage because you you know something about infrastructure, right? Data scientists, by and large, they tend to have come from academia, 
right? So they didn't, there's a very, a lot of siloing in academia. So that, that kind of philosophy of siloing kind of does carry forward or has carried forward into the data scientist culture. Um, and it wasn't that long ago where I spoke at a data science conference and this gentleman who, uh, I think he went to Oxford. He was a professor at a local university in a tweed suit in July, right? This is all back when we can be in person, um, said to me, sipping tea, like honest to God said, I'm so glad because I told him my background and I'm a, you know, um, and, and then he goes, I'm so glad we have practitioners like you here at these conferences now. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> was I insulted just now? Uh, because there, there, there still is a heavy kind of academic thing in there. And if you look at kind of the, the real cutting edge, you know, they're all academic papers, you know, uh, I recommend, um, if you're really into that stuff, two minute papers is a YouTube channel. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, he basically takes a research paper, um, and he goes through it and kind of analyzes it and shows you the demo and the code. Fantastic stuff. Um, but I am close to time. And so, so, I mean, I would say. Uh, Microsoft Learn has a lot of good stuff there. If you can learn to kind of, you know, be the infrastructure person that the data scientists will rely on, no like and trust, I think you'll be golden. Well, Frank, thank you very much. That was a, you've um, you've upped your game since going off. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'll say that very well. <laughs> uh, very good session and good Q and A. So thank you for your time this morning. Um, and uh, thank you for your contribution to the community. We certainly appreciate it. I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. We know you're busy and we appreciate you listening to our podcast. But we have a favor to ask. Please rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to us. You have subscribed to us, haven't you? Having high ratings and reviews helps us improve the quality of our show and rank us more favorably with the search algorithms. That means more people listen to us, spreading the joy. And, can't the world use a little more joy these days? Now, go do your part to make the world just a little better and be sure to rate and review the show.